Hey guys, it's your guest host Calvin again, actually for what is my my last episode as guest host. Next week we'll have the big boss Dan back in the hot seat and I'm sure everyone's looking forward to his return. Today we had John Chan who is the managing director of Burge Farrell. Burge Farrell is a FMCG branding company all over the APAC region. We talk about his journey growing up in apartheid South Africa, what that looked like and the steps he took to start a new life with his family in Australia. We also discussed the challenges that come with starting from scratch and how this ultimately sparked his entrepreneurship. To wrap it up, John shared some branding wisdom, his expertise in the FMCG world and how to best articulate your brand. This is a conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed coming from a similar background to John and I look forward to you all listening. Enjoy the show. My main man, JC, John Chan. How are you? Very good, man. I'm, um, I've been eyeing the seat for about 190 episodes now, so I'm very happy to finally be here and actually opposite you. So what a day. Thank yeah, I, I had to step in to, to you know, pull some strings and to I'm get you in. Glad you did. That's what networking is <laughs> about, isn't that's it? it? That's it. Um, and no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation for, for a number of reasons. I think, you know, the biggest thing that I'm, I'm keen to talk about is, is your background, which resonates a lot with my background obviously we both come from the same place and I think there's a lot that we've gone through you know in in those experiences that relate to you know where you get to in life and and, and in business and there's a lot of lessons to kind of take out of of our backgrounds and I guess before we get into that why don't you just give us a bit of your career background and and you know a bit about what you're doing currently mm. um, and then we'll get into it all. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I guess from the beginning, straight out of uni, I joined a big four bank in South Africa called Nedbank. I was there for 10 years. I um, did a lot of many roles over 10 years, but mainly as an internal strategy and management consulting consultant. Then after business school, I left for SAB Miller, um, which is at that time the second largest brewery in the world and basically reinvented my career. Um, I had roles in sales, trade marketing and marketing. And then in the last few years, I led the strategy and innovation agenda for the a world top 25 uh, global beer brand called Casa Lager. Um, and then I left uh, and I immigrated to Australia. Um, I struggled a little bit, I suppose we can get into it a little bit later, to get into the, the job market here because I didn't have a network. Um, I had no real career equity, if you will. Uh, people didn't know who I was and there was a very competitive market here in terms of skills. Um, I spent six months at uh, another big bank here, um, but within the first two weeks to a month, I realized, you know, this is this is not what I why I wanted to be here. It wasn't my purpose. It wasn't I didn't want to just come here to feel like I was surviving. I wanted to thrive, which then was, I guess, the the kick in the bum for me to start this entrepreneurial journey. And I've had side hustles along the way, um, and I've grown up in a family uh, on both sides, including my wife's side, where parents are entrepreneurs. Um, and so that's where I started and collaborated with an agency that I know really well. So my agency is called Berg Farrell, um, and I own it and run it for the Asia Pacific region. And we're uh, for over two decades. We've been, um, you know, working deep within the FMCG industry, um, everywhere from packaging to NPDs to brand strategies to supporting marketing and trade, um, etc. And um, yeah, it's been 
an interesting few couple of years, which obviously includes uh, COVID and then navigating a new country, finding my feet, finding a network um, and trying to get things off the ground. And yeah, obviously, you know, I know that that's not, that's, that's no easy task. Take me back to, to kind of the early days in South Africa. I think obviously you grew up in a, in an apartheid mm. environment, different to me. Mm. Take me back to the kind of early days in, in Johannesburg and, and how you grew up and what that looked like. Yeah. So, um, I'm third generation South African born Chinese. Uh, my both sets of grandparents arrived in the early 1900s, um, to South Africa from China to escape war and communism and things like that. And, and really with the prospect of trying to find a better life. What they walked themselves into was a place where they didn't know the culture, couldn't speak English, didn't really have any capital um, to make real you know, immediate um, impact. Um, and so they had two choices. You know, so there are no aeroplanes, so they arrived by boats at the coast. Um, and where my grandparents arrived, it was in Port Elizabeth, where I was born. And they could either then decide to go to Johannesburg to basically be indentured slaves in the gold mines because that was the big thing that was happening. Um, but instead they chose, okay, well, what what we can do, which is very similar to I see many first-generation immigrants here in, in Australia, is that you know we, we can grind, we can hustle. And so they bought some things and they sold it for a little bit extra. And so you know, that's how the family grew. My parents um, kind of followed that, that route, um, didn't finish school, um, again, because of the systems that they were born into, but also really because my grandparents were like, you know, you're not going to become, you know, there's no real prospect for you to become a lawyer or a doctor. Um, and while there are some of those in our community, they're very rare. So as soon as they could learn to count and read, they would, you know, move out of school and then move into the family business to help out. And eventually that's what they did. Um, and so I am uh, the youngest of three brothers. Um, you know, I think growing up in apartheid South Africa, when you're young, you don't aren't really familiar with the things that's going on. Um, but I can one of my core memories for, as a child. You know, there's nothing more stark seeing one of your heroes, which at that time was my father, of course. Um, you know, being belittled and not understanding why. And also why he couldn't fight back, right? It's, it's so clear to me. But it's now that I'm an adult, I can I can understand why. Um, and growing up then, you know, in apartheid systems, you know, people, I think when they think about racism, they think about what you see every day. You know, they think about people saying words against you because of the color of your skin and the way you look. But actually apartheid and racist racism is more about the system. So it's around, you know, those systems are set up to oppress masses of people for generations to come and the way i can relate it to a business world you know you know, in order to create real generational wealth you need three things one of them is education another is access to capital and the third thing is access to land and in apartheid all of those things were taken away from people you know so the quality of education if you had one was pretty poor you know we're talking about you know classrooms that are outdoor you know you don't have access to books you know writing materials things like that if you were able to purchase land, it was often land that was undesirable. It was land that was far out, places that were in floodplains. So the land would, you know, often you couldn't grow anything on that land because it was infertile. And then obviously access to capital. You had no real assets. You had no network. So you couldn't gain any kind of land. And that's kind of, 
you know, how we grew up. Um, but, um, you know, my, my parents' philosophy, just like their grandparents and just as my, as their parents and as my philosophy as a parent now is that the next generation needs to be better than the previous generation. And so they managed to put us through school. Um, we managed to get through uni, you know, which is none of our parents, none of my dad's brothers or my mom's brothers even made it that far. Um, so it was quite an achievement, uh, for them. Um, but you know, growing up in those times, I think, you know, I, I guess it adds a level of resilience, you know, as a lot of the systemic racism issues still happening in South Africa and in third world countries, very similar to that, uh, where for generations now people are going to be feeling the effects, um, trying to dig themselves out of that hole. Um, but you know, the reason why we're here is again, to give my children another opportunity at life. Yeah. And I think there's a, you know, there's a few things to be said about that. Obviously you've just, you've just kind of touched on the resilience side of things, you know, and that's obviously huge going through that sort of environment builds resilience. I think for me, whilst it was a different circumstance, you know, my parents brought me to Australia. They made the sacrifice for me. I watched more so their struggles than, than my own. Um, and I think for me, you know, where, where it brought resilience, I think it also brought gratitude for them, you know, for the sacrifices that they made. And I think that gratitude is a huge part of my, my driving force today. It's a part of what motivates me to give back to them for the sacrifices that they made. Um, so I think going through those sorts of environments, whilst difficult, you know, there's always positives to come out of that. You spoke about like the, the, the systems that, that were in place at that time, obviously apartheid South Africa. What, what did that actually look like? Mm. So for me growing up, um, I thought everything was great, you know, cause we'd come home from school, I'd play cricket in the street and everyone around me looked like me, all right? So Asian people. And only when I grew up did I realize that it was because the apartheid government forced people like us into those areas. Right? But that was normal for me. And only once we stepped out and I moved out of Port Elizabeth into Johannesburg, which is a much bigger city, I realized, wait a minute, you know, that, that's a little bit crazy. You know? um, things like you know, even just using public transport. Um, you know, not, there were certain seats that were reserved for other people and not for you. Um, even the schools that I went to, I think I was fortunate to go to Catholic schools because they were some of the people that were rallying against the system and trying to give us a good education. Um, but even just in getting, um, you know, beyond that, just getting jobs, you know, you know, trying to get there because, you know, based on the strength of the candidate and not what I look like or what I don't look like was a struggle. You know, some of the clearest memories I have, even working in quite a big establishment was someone from HR phoning me and picking up the phone. And then the first thing she said to me is, I can't believe how, how good your English is. You know, it's like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you know, people like you don't necessarily speak English very well. <laughs> like, like, yeah. I, and again, it was a, just another timely reminder that, you know, other people see me differently, you know, um, and I'm not unique, you know, this happens all across the world. And a lot of my contemporaries have faced that. Um, and to a certain extent, I think we still, go through those kinds of things um, to this day. But yeah, I mean, you know, it helped me give me perspective, you know, um, 
there's this thing that my kids learned in school about, it's called the catastrophe scale. So when you think something's really bad, put it on a scale and then measure it to see how bad it is because that will help you frame how you react to it. And for me, living in those things, living under those conditions, seeing my parents going under, going under those kinds of things and some of my friends helps me frame even today, you know, when I've moved another country to starting a business and when things aren't going my way in business to go, well, you know, from your perspective, is this the worst thing that's happened? You know, um, yes, it's tough, but you've been through tougher. So how can you use that to, you know, really just bite down and get through these moments? Because the good times will be after that. Um, yeah, 100%. And I think that's why, you know, it, it's so important for people to go through adversities in life. Everybody goes through them. And and I think, you know, that perspective piece is is so important. And I think even if you can if you can somewhat, you know, obviously some people go through through much harder adversities than others. So this isn't a blanket statement, mm. but at times almost look at as adversities as a blessing, you know, because when you come out the other side of that, mm. y- you are going to be stronger and you, you are going to be better for that. Do you remember, I guess, you know, that time when, when, when there was, you know, like Nelson Mandela coming out of jail, mm. the apartheid coming to an end, mm. Do you remember that time? Do you remember what it felt like and, and what it looked like? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I guess up until that point, um, we're living in a – it's not really natural. You know, you, you know that there are many things that you cannot do, you're not allowed to do. And, and even if it's not overt, like in your face, you're not allowed to do, there's things happening in the background that prevent you from that. And that moment was really just a moment where there's a chance of hope you know, that things will change, that the millions and millions of lives who have lived like this um, will be changed. Um, the reality was a little bit different, you know, so there wasn't a quick 180 flip. Um, you know, it's been since 1994, what's that, almost 30 years now. Um, and there's still a lot of challenges um, and growing pains for a young nation. Um, have a lot of lives changed in South Africa, including uh, my generation's children's lives, have they changed? They have, but have they have more lives as in, you know, the millions of lives that I'm talking about, the other people on the other side that are really living close or if not on, you know, in extreme poverty, have enough of those lives changed? No, they haven't. Um, but, you know, that's, I guess, looking at it from a, from a maybe a more pessimistic view. Um, yeah, I've been out of the country, South Africa, for six years now. Um, my parents are still there, so I still live on a daily basis through them. Um, and yeah, there's still, still a lot of challenges, even though that moment that happened, which is great. And it was great for the world stage to see and shone a a real light on what was happening. Um, but to a large extent, I think, you know, South Africa and Africa too, certainly in my experience here in Australia is a forgotten continent. You know, we we just think there's only crime and bad things that happen out there where actually it's a really good place, you know, and it's only changed for the better since 94, but there's a long way to go still. Yeah, and I, and I totally agree. I think, you know, I think the thing that's always kind of struck me about, about Africa and, 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 you know, that, that continent and South Africa in general is that the people are incredible. You know, the people in general, they are incredible. They're just going through a hard environment and it's, it, it is hard to see how that, how that changes. Um, but obviously, you know, the hope, the hope is that it does. What, what, what was the moment that kind of sparked your, idea to to think about immigration you know what 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 did, what did that look like because I, I remember you know when I talked to my dad 
he he wanted to get out of the country seven eight years before we actually did. He got he got kind of violently hijacked. Um, you know, they had guns in his mouth. You know, the trigger was actually pulled, and there was no bullet in the gun. Thank God. Um, and that that day was seven years before we actually moved. And so, you know, when I look back at that, like I was a young kid, I can't imagine the fear that that my parents had in them every day for those seven years until we got out of the country after experiencing the things that they had, that they had experienced. What was the moment for you that kind of sparked, you know, the initial kind of idea to move? So I think contextually, you know, South Africa, there's a lot of crime and there's a lot of violent crime. Um, you know, it's a country with great disparity between rich and poor. And when there's so many poor people, you know, it causes people to do desperate things because they need to survive and which means that life is cheap. So the cost of taking a cell phone or a wallet or a ring from someone can often cost that person their life. So there's that. So there's a lot of that kind of thing. And because of that, we've had to live in like our homes were <laughs> – you know, two it's like a jail walls. cell. Yeah, it, it was. When, and I only realized that now that I've been here, but when we're there, you're normal. It's normal for you because you have to live that way. And despite that, there were incidents, attempted break-ins into our homes. Uh, I've been followed so many times home um, to in attempted hijackings. Luckily, when you're living in that almost like war zone kind of environment, you always need to be switched on. So I was quite well aware, luckily, that I was being followed. My parents have been robbed, had guns pointed at them um, in their businesses, my family too. But I think one of the catalysts were, was is at that time my youngest child, my eldest child was just born. She was a year. And um, we got a call from our in-laws that, you know, they'd just been attacked in the family home, you know, a family home for over 20 years, you know, home which is their castle, you know, a place where they're supposed to feel safe. And much like you, it was it was pretty violent um, and it shook everyone up and, and that was the catalyst and it didn't help that like a month or two later when they'd moved out a very similar thing happened to them again um, you know and so that was the seal and that was what early 2008 2009 we had um, applied um, and so it's been a what's that nine-year journey to get here um, including if you include the six years that we've been it's been 15 years since we've made that decision um, but it's not too dissimilar, right? It's, I realize that even though we feel like it's good to give us build resilience in us and, you know, have a strong survival instinct, you know, maybe there's a better way to do it. And my kids, I had a young kid and another kid came, my second child came along and, you know, it's hard enough to look after my, just myself and then obviously look after my wife. But now I've got two kids that I'm bringing into this world um, that I want to give them a different opportunity, a different start. Um, and I'm careful to say that it's necessarily better because that's all relative. Um, but, you know, there's no looking back right now. You know, I'm very happy with the decisions that we made as hard as it was to uproot myself and my career and my family and my, you know, um, career trajectory. It was all, as your parents said, you know, to give a different start to my children and whether or not they decide, whether you decide one day to go back to Africa because there's some yearning uh, to go back and give back, um, you know, that's up to them. Yeah, that's, I guess, one part that I feel guilty about leaving is, you know, I always wanted to be a part of the change, having been part of, you know, uh, the, some of its worst history. You know, I also wanted to be there for when things do eventually change. 
Um, but unfortunately, the the need to look after my family and be internally focused on that kind of stuff uh, overrode that. Um, and that's why I'm here today. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a common kind of theme and a, a kind of common catalyst as to why I know now. You know, I'm in I'm in my early thirties. A lot of my friends who are still there, you know, they're starting to get married. They're starting to have children. And now they're starting to think of these things, you know, so, and it's not easy to get out. So, so, you know, to, to do that for the sake of your family, I think, you know, that family is the most important thing. So yeah. it's, it's always admirable. Take me through, I guess, you know, what it looked like once you, once you had made the move, you know, cause people often think, all right, you know, cool. We, we we've immigrated now. It's a, uh, it's smooth sailing. You know, yeah. we find ourselves in Sydney, Australia, one of the best places yeah. in the world. Yeah. Smooth sailing. We know that's not the case. Mm. I, I would actually say that the hardest times that, that me and my family have gone through were post-immigration, you know, even to the point where my parents divorced last year mm. and there's no doubt in my mind that was 15 years after we had immigrated. Mm. There's no doubt in my mind that the immigration was where those holes started, mm. you know, forming. Tell, tell me about a little bit about what, what, what that looked like, how you kind of found your feet, you know, how you started – building the life that, you, that you've now got? Mm. So when I landed, um, thankfully my wife worked for a company uh, that had roots in Australia. Um, so she managed to network her way to be able to find an opportunity here. So she hit the ground running uh, with work, which in the beginning freed me up to just help the kids settle in, you know, get them dropped off at school, be there at the end of the day, you know, to pick them up, uh, which I think went a long way into settling them. And then while they're at school, then I took the opportunity then to try and find a corporate job because by at that stage, you know, I, that's all I'd known. Um, and what I found was, you know, I wasn't, I don't believe I was arrogant to think that based on my qualifications and the work that I've done and the companies that I worked for, that I would just walk into a job. But I did think that I would at least have gotten a few more opportunities and a look in at you know, at least a face-to-face interview. But that first six months, you know, was a real eye-opener. And and quite honestly, it it frustrated me to no end. And you talk about, you know, being tough. That six months and that first maybe even two years was probably the toughest time that I've ever been through. Um, just because I just found it so frustrating. You know, I couldn't find my feet. And, and I think we're all looking for purpose and, and, and a lot of portion, portion of, of what you do for work and your career is part of your purpose and your identity. And I didn't have that. You know, that just prevented me from settling in a little bit. And so, you know, hundreds of applications put in, you know, and each one of them had to be tailored because there's a cover letter and that whole process and just being frustrated by not getting any feedback. Like, even if I don't get it, just tell me why I didn't get it so I can improve. And that was horrendous. Um, but then I think seven months in, I found a job at a big four bank here, as I mentioned before, and that was also through my network, which was through my wife. And that was seven or eight interviews as well. So many hoops, uh, to go through. Um, and then what I walked into was, and I probably made a wrong turn. You know, I, I needed to get into the job market. I need to pay some bills. I wanted to get settled. Um, but it just wasn't the role for me, um, and the situation. And very quickly I realized, man, my choice here is to leave um, and then go back into this job market again, which actually did my head in almost, you know, the first six months or seven months that I was trying um, or try and tough it out. And I did for five months, but, you know, that was when 
I, for the first time in my life, went to go see someone, you know, a, a psychologist to help me and work through those kinds of things. Um, and the conclusion I reached was, you know, this is, again, I didn't just come here to try and survive. I came here to thrive and this is not that environment. And so I left. Um, so by the early 2018, I was back on the job market again. And I chose a different approach this time uh, where I thought I'd rather reach out to many people and try and network my way um, in. Because previously, I wasn't getting it in. I wasn't being able to speak to people and tell them my story. They were just reading my CV and even then, it's just software that's scanning it, and they're not even giving you that opportunity to do that. And so, for the first, the next eight months of 2018, um, I did that and met, had many coffees, and you know, met some really great people. Um, but nothing really came about from that. And then, that's when I went. You know, well, you know, I think in life sometimes you you need a little kick up the bum to do something that you weren't planning to do. Uh, and for me, that was this is the kick up the bum for me to try and start my own thing um, and go on this entrepreneurial journey, which I have before and I've been witness to through my parents and through my in-laws and through my grandparents and things like that. Um, because at worst, it wouldn't be any worse than where I was, right? Um, and so I started that journey uh, beginning of 2020. And um, I think we all know what happened at the beginning of 2020, uh, where the big C, uh, COVID came about. And so for the next two years was, was extremely challenging, but I took that as an opportunity to sharpen the sword, um, you know, get better at what I was trying to do, get better at my product and service that we were offering, reaching out to people where I could, but also it coincided with my time uh, trying to realize that actually I don't have a network, so why don't I try and build it even more? And that's when I joined Cub um, because, you know, I, I saw what you guys were doing um, and it it absolutely suited me to a T. Um, and yeah, um, that's helped me immensely along the way. You know, the last four years, although if you adjusted for COVID for the last two years, has had many ups and many downs. Um, but I don't think that's abnormal. Um, and I think um, I'm on my path um, of the thing that I want to do and the purpose that I, I have. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that community piece is, is so, it's so important. You know, when I look back, obviously, you know, being part of a, of Cub, I know how important a community is, how important a network is. When I look back at when we first moved here, you know, if my dad had had something like this mm -hmm. to be a part of, you know, how would things have been different? You move to a new country, you don't, you don't have that. You just, you just don't, no matter, no matter if you've got some, some family here or mm -hmm. whatever it might be, it takes years and years and years to build that kind of thing. So I think that that community piece and that network is, it's how you build at mm -hmm. the end of the day. It's how, it's how you get to where you want to get to. Why do you think, I mean, South Africans in general, but, but it's not just South Africans, it's, it's immigrants in general. Why do you think immigrants have such entrepreneurial spirit? Mm -hmm. why, why do you think that is? Because if you look around, most immigrants become business owners. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that's the case? So I don't think it's certainly in my example, and I think I could extrapolate it to many people that do that. I think I won't call it the path of least resistance, um, but it certainly is not very difficult in my perspective because I come from a place in South Africa where SMEs are almost non-existent. Yeah, the system don't exist for you to easily start and run and succeed as a small business. And I come here you know, the SMEs make up almost two thirds of the economy here. Um, and 
you know, by starting your own business, you don't have to navigate, you know, uh, going for interviews and competing with other people who are going for the same job, 200 other people. You can start your business fairly simply. Um, and then it's all up to you. That same effort that you probably would have put in, you know, uh, working for someone, you can do it for yourself and get this business off the ground and, and maybe, um, I guess, you know, make a success of it. I think for me, you know, to answer your question, you know, why, um, I think, I think it, it's for me and for a lot of people that I know that have done the same thing, it's just that kick up the bum, you know, that fire is less like, yeah, I've got a clean slate. Uh, I can do what I want. And if I can try and imagine the best future for myself, this is what it is. I think a lot of it also is, I think we need to normalize what entrepreneurship is. Yeah. I think when, very often when I meet people and I tell them, yeah, I have my own business, they automatically think I'm rich and successful, you know, and, and I think that because when we generally people think about business owners, they think of the canvas, they think of the Atlassians, you know, the real outliers out there who have made and put a lot of effort, but have made it really big. Whereas for a lot of people, entrepreneurship is all about the benefits, you know, about, and that is not necessarily about money. It's about the freedom to do what you want to do when you want to do it to balance your life and having time for your children and things like that. And, you know, yes, you need to make a living, but it doesn't necessarily mean you want the responsibility and the stress that comes with building an empire like an Atlas, you know, Canva or things like that, you know? And so to normalize it to that effect, I think that's, I think that's probably part of what we've got in this society, but certainly where I come from, everybody's like, you know, you own your own business. You must be this really big person when actually, no, I, t I, t I totally agree. And I think, I think what's important for people to kind of take out of that, particularly when, you know, you're thinking about starting your own business is be mindful of why, you know, what, what is the, what is the reason that you, you're wanting to do that? Is it because you want to build an empire, you know, or is it just because you want to have the freedom to do what you want to do, spend time with your family when you can, you know, go on an occasional holiday and not have to take leave, Whatever the reason might be, there's lots of different reasons, um, and it doesn't have to become this this huge empire if you don't want it to. And I, I think that's a really good lesson, you know, when 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 starting out. Um, before we get into, I guess, you know, a bit more about the, the the insides of of what you do and and what you do in your business, how how did you find business differed, I guess, almost culturally? you know, from South Africa to Australia, are they different business environments and, and operating environments? And is that something that you had to navigate? Operating environments, absolutely. You know, um, it's just the pie here is very big. So the economy is very big. And again, this is all relative, right? So if someone comes from the US, they're going to say this is very small, but I'm coming from South Africa where the economy is pretty big. What that means is there's a lot of competition, you know, and in my industry, which is brand and marketing, um, I think I heard a stat the other day that there's 14,800 registered agencies in this country, you know, all competing for that pie. And while I believe that the pie is big enough to sustain all of us, that means that anywhere you go, you know, pitching for work um, and things like that is is going to be highly competitive. And the same thing applies, right? It's going to be about that network. You know, who do you know? And sometimes I think you'll know better. Uh, sometimes that network has to stretch all the way from who you grew up with, you know, not, not just about what work you've done with them later in life. Um, and so again, you know, I'm facing those, those same issues, I guess, I guess when I was trying to look for a job, now I'm trying to find work here um, and find clients, I suppose that, you know, 
network is still going to be key and it's highly, highly competitive. So, yeah, I want to segue a bit more into, you know, what you're, what you're currently doing. Before we get into the, the kind of nuts and bolts of that, give us a bit of an overview of, of what your business is in its current form. So we're a, we're a brand design agency. So in, I guess, layman's terms, that is a graphic design agency. So we do everything visual uh, that's part of a business um, or a brand. Um, we have a particular speciality in FMCG, having worked for over two decades with probably nearly every uh, global FMCG brand and probably brands that you pick off the shelf today and consume at home, we've touched them at some point of view. So what that means is we, you know, within the FMCG world, we do everything from brand strategy to uh, packaging, which is a key part of what we do, um, to, you know, point of sale stuff to support it in trade. You know, we do outdoor, you know, advertisements. And so all those visual elements. And again, you know, very, very deep specialism um, in FMCG. Um, and again, you know, there's the common things like logos and corporate identities, all of those kinds of things that we do as well. And, you know, I guess to kind of further that, what would you say are some some keys to building a good brand and, and, and to, to that branding piece in general? Yeah. So I think, you know, c- certainly when it comes to logos and packaging in general, so that visual piece, a lot of people try and shortcut that process and go straight to the output, which is go to a logo and go to a piece of packaging. But before then, there needs to be quite a strong piece about your brand's strategy. Now, brand strategy is different to business strategy. Business strategy tells you how you're going to make money. Brand strategy tells you why you exist behind making money. If I had to equate that to um, a person, brand strategy is where you discover what your personality is like. So, you know, are you more conservative? Are you extroverted? You know, what kind of job do you have? Are you an accountant? Are you a creative? And all of those things then lead into your visual identity, your brand identity, um, your packaging, you know, your logo. Because, again, using the analogy of a person, you know, if you're conservative, the clothes you wear are probably going to be quite conservative. If you're an accountant, you there's, you know, suits, ties, those kinds of things. If you're creative, you can wear shorts and a T-shirt to work. And that then translates in the brand world what you look like, the colors that you have, the packaging that you use um, that represents your personality. Um, and so that I think, you know, for a lot of brands, they, they shortcut that process. They think there's an output that needs to happen, which is I need a logo, I need some packaging. Sure, you do. But if you take a little bit of a step back, and I don't mean many months and many dollars, thousands of dollars investment, just, you know, step back, think about it from the bigger picture first, and then move to those outputs. Because obviously, you know, people do that because you can't see a brand strategy, but you can see a logo, you can see packaging. But just take a more considered approach. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, a brand at the end of the day is a reflection of your story as a business and who you are and the look and the feel and and, and whatnot. In the FMCG space in particular, how is that world changing and, and developing over time? You know, because if you look at, I guess, where, where, where that question sparks from a little bit, if, if I look at some of the packaging back in the day, you know, even if you look at like cigarette boxes, for example, or, or alcohol or mm. cereal, I think it was a lot more kind of aggressive mm. back in the day to, to what you're seeing now. How, how are you seeing that world progress? Mm. So I think two things. One is what you're talking about, I think, is also there's legislation that governs, um, you know, consumers' 
um, at, meant to protect consumers. So, you know, cigarettes is a great example. You know, there's these huge pictures now um, that is, I guess, meant to be a warning, but it really puts people off. And that's mandatory. You can't get away from those kinds of warnings. Same with you know, many other industries. You know, there's mandatory information that needs to place uh, on your packaging, you know, like warnings and, you know, being truthful about your ingredients and all of those things, which are good. But then they take up the real estate in your packaging, right? So that cramps the already limited space. And I think good design actually is where less is more. And so an ability to be able to work within those guidelines that you already, those are the guardrails of how you operate and then still get out a message, still break out and appeal to other, uh, your consumers, your target consumers is, is an art um, and something um, which is, you know, gets refined and honed over many years and many trials and error. The second thing is obviously the advent of, you know, more sustainable packaging, um, you know, less single use, more reusable, and also just the types of materials, um, so recyclable materials and things like that, um, which affects packaging design because currently, you know, and not to get too technical about it, but certain recyclable materials cannot be printed on. Um, there's certain, some inks don't adhere to those kinds of things. So it presents some challenges while still trying to be sustainable, while still trying to be good to the environment. Um, and those things are not going to go away. Um, and it's just something that we, we need to use to our advantage because they're good things. Um, and whether or not they're part of your brand story to be sustainable, um, it certainly is a large part of what drives consumers to buy certain brands these days. When I think of, I guess, the, the FMCG space in general, I, I, you know, and I could be completely off here, but I think about it as a quite a traditional type business, you know, packaging and, and the branding of the packaging. What, what kind of innovations are you seeing in that space at the moment? So I think um, what's important is, so there are many traditional, very strong old brands that exist that have cornered the market, but there are also a lot of up-and-comers that are trying to, you know, scream and shout and get attention. And I think packaging really helps them because that can help differentiate them from these, these, uh, the established people and have a, be a little bit of a cooler, maybe an alternative choice to those. And so packaging, you know, the design and what you put on there, the colors you use, the stories you tell, that's a great opportunity. I think, um, I've seen some really good things about, um, brands that are, are using, things like QR codes now, um, not just to, because we all become used to QR codes um, in you know, having gone through COVID and having to check in and everywhere, but they're using QR codes not just to link back to a website to tell the same story, but certain things like even just tracking where the products come from, taking consumers on that journey of sustainability, um, using, you know, um, you know, augmented reality on their packaging, you know, using uh, really cool inks that stand out, uh, that illuminate the packaging. And all of that is really just to stand out um, on shelf and, and really um, distinguish you from your competitor. And then there's also, you know, the, the, the shape of the vessel that you're, you're in. Uh, so a good example is milk. You know, milks are often, the milk bottles all look the same, um, regardless of whether they're cardboard or, or plastic. But there have been some really good examples of some startups around the world that have um, changed and turned the industry on its head. Um, but again, you know, just to try and, and gain some attention. I'm interested to hear, I guess, 
the 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 full kind of um, three sixty approach. And what I mean by that is, you know, I come to you, you know, I've got a cereal brand, and I think I'm the next Cocoa Pops, mm. and you know, I want to I want to come up with the packaging, mm. and then you know, I want to I want to distribute, I want to I want to go through the mm. I want to go through the whole journey. Yep. What does that look like from start to to finish? Yep. So if you come to us with an idea already, um, what we'll probably do is just validate it with that same same brand strategy. You know, within that brand strategy is a large portion of examining who your competitors are, what they're currently doing, what they talk about, what they look like, all of those kinds of things. Um, because what we need to do is find a point of differentiation for you. Um, and then that's the way we hang our communications off. That's the golden thread that ties everything, including packaging. If you don't come with an idea, you know, let's just say you, you, you've got a product in mind that you think maybe could work, but you have absolutely no idea, then we, again, we will go through a really strong research piece to firm up the idea, you know, that, that product idea with you. Um, and then once we go through that brand strategy process, we then start developing what your brand looks like. And that's not just packaging. You know, it's just, you know, how you communicate the words that you use to communicate and everything needs to be quite consistent, um, in, in the way that you approach the market. Um, and then from there, you know, we help everything from, you know, I mean, obviously we don't, we're not dealing with suppliers, but we, we can help you with the with the label making um, and reach, putting in touch with those suppliers, even the vessels that you use to house your product, whether it's a liquid or a, you know, powder or whatever it is that needs to go on shelf. And then, you know, we also have, because of my own background working at SAB Miller, but also because of the capability we have, we can also recommend partners that need to help, that help to get you onto shelf, you know, to manage the distribution, to manage the, the co-packing with you um, because all of those things are huge investments and in the beginning you're not going to have the funds to do those kinds of things so you need other partners to help you and so we go from beginning straight to end when it eventually hits the shelf whether it's a a, a, a store shelf or a virtual shelf you know if you're selling online e-commerce websites all of those kind of things we can help with all of those um, and then from there sustaining that demand building awareness um, with marketing you know putting you in touch with strong partners that might be interested in uh, promoting your products. Um, so from a whole supply chain perspective, you know, we go end to end, whether or not you're an established business or whether or, not, or whether you're a startup business. So, I mean, typically on this podcast, Cub isn't something that we, we like to go into too much detail on. But I know, you know, having known you for the last kind of four years, that, that, that Cub has been a very important part of your journey post-immigration and, and, and how you've kind of got into where you are now. T tell me a little, a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, I'm glad you asked me because it, it really has been a big part of, of my journey, not just from an entrepreneur's perspective, but also from a personal perspective. When I think most people, when they, I think when they, they join networking organizations, um, they think this is all about the business. And I know there are um, networking organizations that currently exist in this market that it's just about transactions and sales and things like that. But what I found coming here, yes, I've won clients. Um, but more importantly, the other reason why I wanted to join us because I wanted to make some mates. Yeah, I wanted to meet some really good people that we don't have to talk about work. You know, we can talk about other things and, you know, we can go out for dinner, for lunches. We can have, go to watch a footy, whatever, you know, and I have. 
Um, and that's been a big part in helping me not only integrate from a work perspective, but also from a society perspective. You know, um, I can count a good number of people that I consider like, you know, not if I'm in trouble from a work perspective, but if, you know, I run into trouble personally and <laughs> not a troublemaker, I'm just saying that I have a, I have a, a need or a problem that's solving. There are some people from Cub that I would call, you know, because I can count them as my mates. Um, and that's been a big part of it, you know. So it's not just about the the business, let's try and win and, you know, incorporate some sales uh, into the membership. But, you know, it's really been a big part of, of why I think I've settled in so well to Australia. So nothing but positives, man. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, right? Like I always have empathy for, for anyone looking at it from an outside perspective, looking in. You know, it's an environment full of business owners. Why are you in business? You know, because you, you want to grow, you want to do deals. Okay, let me join this place because that's what's going to happen, mm. you know. But the reality of it is this journey, this entrepreneurial journey, it's a very hard journey. It's a very lonely journey. Mm. There's not often people that you can relate to who are in the same position. You know, people often have their families and, and they have their friends, but they're not business owners. And being a business owner brings its own set of challenges. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I see it every day for people to be part of an environment where they're not just able to do business, but they're able to make friends with other people mm. who are like them. Mm. It does bring a very kind of different level of, of, of friendship and, and conversation. And particularly for somebody coming into a new country where yeah. you, you certainly don't have that, yeah. it's it's a, it's a huge part of what we do. And it, it I mean, it's great to see that it, yeah. that it at work. Yeah, and I think I'm sure you guys will say this as well. Of course, you want to bring entrepreneurs together, but I think part of your mission and why you're successful is that you bring people together, you know, and, you know, interpersonally, you know, there's just, and you've, there's just so many occasions where we can do that. And um, I'm really thankful that those structures exist. They almost force me, you know, to get out there, you know, and, and not just sit at home and be lonely on this journey. You know, there are people that I can meet in my immediate circle, you know, uh, that have, are going through the same thing and we can we can support each other. You know, the way I describe it, you know, having grown up in a very small, tight-knit community, regardless of why it was like that, you know, in, what I mean by that is the apartheid system of the time. You know, we often, you know, there were there were people that owned cafes, you know, that sold milk, right? And um, if we needed milk, which you do, you'd more than likely want to go to that person, even though that person, their milk is more expensive than a Coles and a Woolies because they don't have the buying power. But you need it anyway. And plus you you supporting someone in the community. And that's how it feels for me. You know, it, it feels like it's that kind of community that I grew up in, um, which is great, you know, because that's the best part of or one of the best parts of my childhood that I can remember. Yeah. And I think that, that that's an amazing thing to hear. And I think, you know, that's that's what we strive to. So, you know, as I said before, when you see that come to fruition and it, and it changes people's lives, it's a it's a really uh, fulfilling thing to be a to be a part of. What What's next for you? What does the next kind of five years look like for you? So, I mean, I'm always thinking that the business could do better. Uh, I'm, I always try and guard against complacency and hubris where I think it's arrived. So for me, it's just about growth, right? It's, that's the only thing I'm focused on at the moment. I don't think I've seen the best of Australia's economy yet. 
uh, given that when I came and started the business, it was COVID, and now we're struggling a little bit uh, with you know, high inflation and interest rates and finding clients who are a little bit more conservative because they're waiting and seeing. So I'm expecting the next five years to be you know, uh, a little bit more feast rather than famine. Um, and then from there, who knows? You know, I'm, I'm committed to this entrepreneurial journey. Um, who knows what opportunities may present themselves. Um, but I think this is my purpose. And it might look like this today, might look differently tomorrow. Um, but I'm, I'm committed to the path. Well, JC, thank you. Thank you for coming on today. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we've always had a, a special relationship in that, you know, we resonate on on where we've come from and it's it's great to have a, a fellow South African as, as part of the community. And yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think there's a lot of lessons um, that people can take away from, from the journey that you've been on. No, and again, thank you for the opportunity. I've always wanted to be here. Uh, if nothing, just, you know, this is like an online therapy for me. Um, and hopefully there's something here that can resonate with other people. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm not arrogant enough to believe that my situation's unique, whether it's good or bad. Um, but yeah, uh, I think it's, I'm thankful for the opportunity to tell my story. And to the listeners, if you want to know a little bit more about John, um, head over to cub.club slash podcast. Um, we'll have a whole bunch of stuff, you know, from his favorite book to his favorite quote, um, his LinkedIn and his website. Um, again, you know, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and look forward to uh, being a part of each other's future going forward. Great. Thank you.